repeated. And um, we are in a study of the book of Colossians, finishing up. I didn't want to, um, again, start anything new, and I'm about to be away for uh, a few weeks with you, but I would like to meditate with you on the subtext, not only here in Colossians, but in so many of the epistles to the church on this matter of uh, circumcision and the inclusion of the Gentiles as Gentiles and what that might mean for us as well as we continue holding forth the word of life. begin just by reading together with you from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Colossians uh, 2, verse uh, 11. In him, that is, in Christ, you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being raised in, excuse me, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Well, let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this word, this word of the glorious work of Christ, not only for us individually here, but for us together, we pray that in him we might find the newness of life, not only individually, but also together, and have this hope of the gospel made manifest, that our love together as a church, that our unity in Christ so overflowing that, even as we read this morning in that prayer of our Lord, that uh, by being made one, that the world may believe that you have sent your Son and have loved us even as you have loved him. It's in him that we pray. Amen. At the beginning of our worship service this evening, I read to you an account from the book of Acts that was immensely important to the development of Christianity, an issue that leaves its mark on practically every page of the New Testament, but one that we tend to read over or not understand. That is, the transition from an entirely Jewish church to a largely Gentile church, a transition that was pretty bumpy, that was bitterly resisted by some, and still to this day has not been altogether successful. But let me explain to you the the problem and set a little bit of the context for you as we consider what they have to do with us Christians here in Virginia in the 21st century. Well, way back in the days of Abraham, God marked out a holy people with a sign, a sign of circumcision. And you just read some of the things that were involved in that sign right in our passage, a sign way back in Genesis 17 that pointed the way for God's holy people. Circumcision was not, as perhaps we too often hear, a physical sign for a physical people with nothing other than promises for a nation in the eyes of some. Oh no, the whole Bible says he is not a Jew who is one inwardly, no, 
circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the heart, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Yes, Abraham, it says, received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believed. And so, from that time on, the world was divided sharply between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And here, even in the passage that we read, we we have connected of the flesh uh, trespasses and being under condemnation. This was the great difference that God made in the world, an initiatory right to come into the people of God that signified an inward reality, being born again, born of the Spirit, having that, uh, the circumcision of heart in the Spirit, as Paul puts it, not in the letter. Uh, one that would represent repentance, as the people were constantly told, circumcise your hearts. Uh, one that would represent to them justification by faith, or particularly as we read here in Romans 4, the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. A picture of a cleansed heart, of union with God, of citizenship among God's people, of a separation from the world, and one that would lead them either to blessings and curses. And so the point is, if you wanted to be a member of the people of God, if you wanted to even worship God at his temple, you had to be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male child, God said, um, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. And there were signs in the temple preventing any uncircumcised person from entering. Two of them still survive to this day, probably in the British Museum, I don't know. But uh, in Greek and in Latin as well as in Hebrew, no Gentile is to enter the sanctuary. Who's ever caught will have himself to blame for the death which follows, posted on every wall. Not trespassers will be prosecuted, but trespassers will be executed. Okay, um, God had given his people laws to make them holy that they had kept for thousands of years. And of the people here, the Jewish people here, their their great-grandfathers had been martyrs for this law. They had died by the thousands when the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who'd conquered them, tried to force them to abandon God's law and adopt Greek ways. The baby boys, he said, if you circumcise those boys, I'm going to kill them. And they circumcised them anyway. And their infant sons had been ripped out of the parents' arms and slaughtered because the people of God refused to give up circumcision. They maintained a strict separation from the Gentiles. Now, this is more than what God had required. But it was what was indicated in the sign, this separation from sin, this separation that God made between peoples. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't even go to the house of an uncircumcised person. They wouldn't sit at the table with them. And then there comes this new teaching, which shocked the sensibilities of the people that had been so devoted to this law. Circumcision is nothing, Paul says elsewhere. And uncircumcision is nothing. Really, nothing? 
was very hard to take in. Here in Colossians 3, verse 11, a passage we'll come back to. There is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Is, is there not? Paul is, is solving a problem in the passage I read to you, a major problem, making this connection between circumcision and baptism. And this also has something to do with us today, as I'd like to show you. I'd like to speak to you about the problem of the uncircumcised heathen, the problem of the circumcised separatists, and then the problem of becoming one in Christ Jesus, as we are called to be, and to call your attention to this subtext, which still has a word to speak to our church today. First, the uncircumcised heathen. Back earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, verse uh, 17, uh, excuse me, in uh, verse 27, 127, we read, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who are the Gentiles again? Well, you say, uh, Gentiles? They're just uh, people like you and me. We're Gentiles. I mean, except there may be, well, some exception here. I don't know. But, uh, you know, Gentiles, we say, that's simple. Non-Jews. Okay, well, that's true. But as I've pointed out to you once before, saying that hides or smooths over something that's very important. What did the word Gentile mean to the people of that day? Gentile means to the people of that day about what the word heathen means to us today. The dictionary gives the synonyms barbaric, savage, rude, uncivilized, coarse, crude, rough. You think about the history of that word in Israel, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the heathen Gentiles. You think about the first century pagans in Galatia, their worship with temples, with prostitutes at the temple, and so forth. You think of the great mass of cursing, carousing, fornicating, idol-worshiping, lost humanity. This is the uncircumcision. These are the heathen. That's what it means to Paul and to the fellow Jews when the Lord sent them to bring the heathen into the church. It's a shocking word, disturbing and unsettling. The word uncircumcised was a kind of insult. These were the unclean people, the contaminated people that brought much defilement with them, even when they came into the church. They were the people whom God told to keep their distance from. Don't learn their ways, God says. In a passing reference in Galatians, we read that we Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. It's practically the same thing. Sinners of the Gentiles. That's whom God's people were and always been. The Jews wouldn't visit heathen homes. They wouldn't eat at temples because they might be defiled by them. We don't just say Jews and Gentiles are two different groups, Gentiles or non-Jews. You must understand the distastefulness of the word heathen. Similarly, the word uncircumcised is a synonym in the Bible again and again for all that is sinful, unclean, corrupt, wicked, an unclean man with unclean lips, or you can remember as David uh, saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the, 
the armies of God, or Jeremiah's word against the uncircumcised of Egypt and Ammon and Moab who dwell in the wilderness, the nations that are uncircumcised and the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. He means wicked. Wicked people. These were the people that they were responsible to go out and bring in, and they were flooding the church of that day. It pleased God to make known his gospel to the wicked, to the heathen, to the uncircumcised, distasteful, fornicating, disgusting people of the day. And in other letters, we're reminded of just what kind of people we're talking about, how the church in Corinth was made up of godly Jews, which had no doubt served God faithfully from generation to generation and believed in Messiah, and others who had been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. Such were some of you. How does that sound for a church picnic? Obviously, there were some of the worst kinds of problems now among the people of God in that same church. It wasn't a theoretical problem. The Gentiles brought, we read, incest, people still going to idols' temples. Yeah, where those prostitutes worked and all that. Uh, you could imagine many of them still using foul language. Others have a lingering effeminacy about them. The Gentiles did not become perfect saints and wonderful holy people the moment they came in. The church was now all of a sudden filled with uncircumcised heathen. Yuck. It's easy to relate to people like ourselves. What about people who are not like us at all? What about heathen people? Some of us went that long ago. We were those heathen people, right? And we were viewed with a little suspicion sometimes with the people of God. Not so sure about them. What people who are different from us and who are getting more different, it seems, every year, whom we have less and less in common with, people that are more and more like the people of the ancient heathen world, pagan world. There is more and more cultural and moral and spiritual difference between us as the time passes. In previous days, there, there wasn't such a separation, such a previous, such a pronounced difference Christianity had more of an effect on the culture, but more and more, our situation today is becoming like the first century situation. There's a, there's a divide between the people of God and the uncircumcised heathen, if you like. And, and the, the church has the uncomfortable responsibility to make known that mystery of Christ among the heathen to do more and more cross-cultural missions just to meet the average heathen American next door? And do we even have such a burden for such people? You know, the Jews of the, of the day, they just shake their head, right, at the, the kind of wickedness that was just common among the heathen. And they didn't have any meaningful contact with the people, do we have any meaningful contact with such people today? I'm simply pointing out that if we are to preach Christ among the Gentiles, we are more and more going to face the problems that they faced and then have the problems in the church that they had to face. We have what kinds of problems in the church? What kind of sins we have in the church? What are we doing? This is a great challenge. Paul was sent to preach among the heathen, 
The church was sent to declare that mystery. So are we today. How are we going to win people to the grace of God and Jesus Christ? It was a difficulty for them. And, well, frankly, it was, it's a difficulty for us. I come secondly to the, uncircum- to, me, to the circumcised separatists. I've talked about the uncircumcised heathens, but there's another problem. It's the circumcised separatists, okay? Uh, who is this Paul writing the letter, this man who was the apostle to the Gentiles, the man sent to the heathen? To put it mildly, to make an understatement, he had nothing in common with the people to whom he was sent. Of all the men that the Lord could have picked to send as the apostle to the Gentiles, who did he pick? A man that was not only a Hebrew of Hebrews, but a Pharisee? A rabbinic scholar brought up at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. A highly intelligent, sensitive, well-educated member of the Sanhedrin. Do you, do you see something strange that, that that is the man of all people that was sent to the heathen to preach Christ? He was sent to, to preach to a people who weren't like him at all. People of whom, frankly, he would have had no dealings with growing up, and he would have learned a shuddering distaste. People very far from his background ethnically, morally, culturally, spiritually, in every other way. I mean, it would be something like a post-Reconstruction Ku Klux Klan leader being chosen as God's man to bring the gospel to the black ghettos and to give his life living and preaching Christ among them. You think, you, you picked the, the polar opposite. Man, was it not a shock to his fellow Jews who find themselves in a racially, culturally, morally mixed congregation? It'll help you understand why some of the Jews wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses, and why many others jumped on the idea as soon as they heard it. Yeah, that's what we need to do. That's what we've always done. Heresy doesn't just grow out of nothing. It's frankly much more comfortable not to eat at the same table with such people, and that's what Paul refers to in his letter to the Galatians, where in Antioch, Peter gave in to the pressure, and he stopped eating at the same table as the Gentiles. And we read, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. That's all they needed. You Gentiles sit there. We're going to sit over here. It smells over there. The rest of the congregation were only too ready to stop mingling with those people. And a new theology from Jerusalem saying that the circumcised and the uncircumcised should be separate was very welcome. So, you know, they had church lunches, like we have church lunches. And you know what it's like when you're looking for a table, and there's just a, just a little bit of a divide between you and, and other people as you're picking a place to sit, right? Uh, you're looking to, you know, should I sit here? Yeah, maybe not that table. Maybe I'll sit over here, right? There, there's just something about the, the, the comfort level that we feel that people that are, I don't know, what, like us? And Paul is shattering that. God is shattering that, right? Picking this, <laughs> this Roman centurion, he'll be the poster boy for Gentiles in the church. Let's start with him. And let's bring in all these heathen. 
And separation is never given as an option in the Bible. Messianic congregations are just absolutely not allowed. It is contrary to the very plan of God, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, that God has revealed by his Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles, that is to say the heathen, should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And to me, who am the least of all the saints, this grace was given me that I should preach among the heathen the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is this stewardship of the mystery, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, which, according to the eternal purpose, he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God was out, not just to save a bunch of individuals, but to bring together in one body, his eternal purpose to bring together in one body a new church as a showcase for humanity, circumcised and uncircumcised, Greeks and Jews, the people that hated one another, barbarians, uh, Scythians. Yeah, you probably don't get the reference, but uh, uh, Scythians, a, a, a hated group. Slaves, free, no longer. Christ, all in all. And Paul is going to insist that in the church, we must demonstrate this, not only to the world, but even by the church to the principalities and powers of the heavenly places and show the victory of the gospel and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to make us one. You see the the difficulty of their situation and of ours today more and more in the world. Come to our third point, my final point to you this evening, becoming one in Christ. Becoming one in Christ. This is the subtext behind the passage I read to you at the beginning, which you probably thought I forgot about. I did not. This is where it comes in. As the pressure was lingering for those uncircumcised heathens to become circumcised and so forth, and uh, in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements, the law that was against us, which was contrary to us. Having disarmed principalities and powers who had been ruling over the nations, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over it in the cross. All these things that circumcision was supposed to mark out among the people, an initiatory rite into the people of God, signifying an inward reality, picturing the death of the old man, representing repentance and regeneration and justification by faith and a cleansed heart and union with God and citizenship among the people and nation of God and and separation from the world that would lead to blessings and curses. He says, you know, in that baptism, all that was symbolized 
and more. That in Christ Jesus, there's nothing left that you haven't received. Don't, tell, don't let anyone tell you you need to be circumcised, you Gentiles. You've received the circumcision of Christ, baptized with him, raised with him, and in him, Christ is all and is in all. And so despite all the tensions that remained in the congregation, Paul called for an end to hostility of different groups, a putting away of old rivalries, a reaching out in mercy, that there might be a growing family of God, a demonstration, a proof to the powers and principalities of his reconciling power. And as Paul goes on to say uh, after saying that uh, in chapter 3 there's not going to be any more barbarian, Scythian, slaver-free in the church, no, no, no. He says positively, as the elect of God, Jews, Gentiles, Parthians, Scythians, you put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and above all these things, love. This is going to be the, the new calling of the people of God. A difficult calling in some ways that I have explained to you. And the church today has a very similar burden. We also are called to preach Christ among the heathen. We also are to de- declare this salvation and to reconcile into one body the sinful uh, nations of the earth uh, holy in Christ Jesus. And therefore we have an obligation to labor for a church that embraces such people even over the kind of divisions that still trouble the world. John Stott wrote, Christians, nevertheless, erect new walls in the place of old, which Christ has demolished. A new color bar. Nationalism, tribalism, personal animosities engendered by pride, prejudice, jealousy, class. These things are doubly offensive. They're an offense to Christ, How dare we build walls of partition in the one and only human community in in which he's destroyed them. And to perpetuate these barriers in the church, even to tolerate them without taking any active steps to overcome them, is to set ourselves against the reconciling work of Christ or even try to undo it, he writes. And what is offensive is offensive in a different way to the world. It hinders the world from believing in Jesus. God intends his people to be a visual model of the gospel, to demonstrate before people's eyes the good news of reconciliation. But what is the good of gospel campaigns if they don't produce gospel churches? It is simply impossible without any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus by his cross has abolished the old divisions and created a single new humanity of life while at the same time we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial, social, or other barriers within our church fellowship. We need to get the failures of the church on our conscience to feel the offense to Christ and the world, which these failures are, and to weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk, end quote. Thanks for letting me read a long quote here. He says, basically, it's just far too easy for us to enjoy a nice, close fellowship of people like us in a reasonably sanctified state and to maintain that comfortable situation. Paul had to embrace a great cost, 
He was not the most natural man to go out into the world this way. Paul's biggest obstacle, think about this, his biggest obstacle to the success of his mission to the nations was himself. If there was anyone that Paul grew up hating more than the uncircumcised heathen, it was the Christians later in life. And now he had to go to the heathen to win them to Christ. He had to make a substantial effort. He had to adapt himself personally. He makes this classic statement in 1 Corinthians 9, I make myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Here are active steps that this man took to reach people for whom he had a natural hereditary antipathy. And Paul gained a deserved reputation for being a man-pleaser. I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. He would adapt himself as he needed to if only the gospel would go forward in new ways, among new people, in new directions. Slaves and free and Parthians and Scythians and male and female, all one in Christ Jesus. And we likewise have our own personal, cultural prejudices, preferences. Perhaps they're reasonable, perhaps they're unreasonable. Paul says, what do they matter given the task that's ahead? He had to adapt himself personally. He had to adapt his method. When he, when he was going to reach the Jews, as he always did first, he just headed to the synagogue, if that was available, where he was probably the most comfortable, where he was brought up, where he was recognized as a Sanhedrin member and a, and a learned rabbi, and he would be able to stand up and preach Christ. But that was not the best place always to reach the heathen. So he went to the marketplace. He went to the houses. He went to the Jewish ladies' prayer meeting that he heard about at Philippi. He heard about the lecture hall that was available to rent and rented that and gave lectures every day. He went to meet the philosophers at the Areopagus. Paul even had some opportunities to engage in prison ministry a few times. By all means, he says, by all means to save some. Paul went to them. You know, there's an interesting phrase in Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, as this um, uh, lesbian professor tenured in queer theory at Syracuse comes to Christ, right? Now married to my friend. You say, well, how, how, how did the gospel reach her? Ken and Floyd, she said, brought the church to her. She wasn't about to go to church. She would have been offended at the invitation. In fact, she was relieved when Ken and his wife didn't even invite her the first time she went over. She she was used to people who didn't care about her at all, but they would invite her to church. she, She found in Ken and his wife somebody who cared for her enough to bring the church to her. It's not either or, of course. But Paul didn't expect people just to walk in the door. To preach Christ among the heathen. He had not only to adapt himself, but he had to adapt his methods. This is God's eternal purpose. 
I can't just preach two comfortable sermons each week from the pulpit. Galatians 2 again, they gave us the right hand that we should go to the Gentiles, and it was painful. But he embraced the pain, adapted his methods as well as himself, and went forth. He even had to adapt his message. As you compare his sermon in the synagogue in Acts 13 to the country farmer idolaters at Lystra, Acts 14, and the philosophers at Athens in Acts 17. It's, it's actually the same sermon in three different ways, just written from a different perspective. In the first case, he addresses Jews and God-fearing Greeks. In the second, he addresses farmers who are worshiping idols. In the third, academic intellectuals of a kind, philosophers. And he gives his message, same message in greater detail in the first several chapters of Romans, but striking differences. He quotes much more scripture in the synagogue to the rural pagans. He talks about God sending rain from heaven and getting good harvests. At the Areopagus, he quotes Greek writers and poets, apparently from memory, and talks about some higher purposes in the world that God has. This is a man who is laboring to craft a compelling message to know how to answer every man. I'm not saying that we need to learn how to give people what they want to hear. But as one man puts it, we have to learn to give people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all want to hear, to questions about life and eternity, which people may not want to ask, in the language and forms that they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments that with force they can feel, even if they reject them. Paul knows that this message is going to fall on so many deaf ears as foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. But to some, it is going to be the word of life. And so he labored to make it persuasive. He built on the truth people had. He selects imagery, vocabulary, and illustrations. Because not everybody would understand Paul's synagogue's method, message. Not everybody would find that compelling. Brothers and sisters, we also have a similar task ahead of us. And it's getting more difficult for, the, for very similar reasons. We are going to have to adapt ourselves, our methods, how we speak to people in order that the eternal purposes of God may be more and more fulfilled among us. It's the only way of faithfulness. It's not the way of comfort, but it is a way to demonstrate the power of God In conclusion, when the English settlers gained the king's permission to start a colony in the New World at Plymouth, the royal charter was for a very important purpose. You know why America was settled? Well, the charter said, among other things here, of course, to win and incite the natives of that country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind. And the Christian faith is in our royal intention and the colonists' own pre-profession the principal end of the plantation. Do you know that? To win people to our God and the only Savior of men and the Christian faith and their own free profession, that's the end of the plant. That's the goal of the plantation. They came with a missionary purpose and charter Twenty-five years on, the people grew extremely discouraged. There was 
it seemed an unbridgeable gap. H how are we going to reach the heathen? That's, that's our purpose in coming. What are we going to do? John Elliott, missionary to the American Indians, he wrote a pamphlet called The Day Breaking, If Not the Sun Rising of the Gospel, with the Indians in New England, 1647. He says, I think now that it is with the Indians, as it was on our new American ground when we first came over, that there was scarce any man that would believe that English grain would grow here, or that the plow could do any good in this woody and rocky soil. And thus they continued in this lazy unbelief for some years, until experience taught them otherwise. And now all see this ground to be scarce inferior to the old English tillage, but bears very good burdens. So we have thought of our Indian people. He says, it's just like when we got here and we, we thought, well, who could ever have a harvest here? Look at this rocky ground. A plow can't even get through it. And now, now look at it. These Indian people, we have been discouraged to put plow to such dry, rocky ground. But God, having begun this with some few, it may be that they are better soil for the gospel than we can think. It's easy for us to discourage and throw up our hands and say, this, this is more and more just foolishness to the world or a stumbling block. What hope is there in a world such as ours? Well, how about we put plow to the ground? If this is the eternal purpose of God, that by the church he would still demonstrate his reconciling power of his spirit among the powers and principalities, perhaps this is better soil for the gospel than we might think. Brothers and sisters, let us give ourselves to the proclamation of the gospel among the heathen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for that baptism with which we ourselves have been baptized. And we confess that we who have been redeemed uh, have often complained about rocky ground, have been slow to see your purposes fulfilled as we are able. And we pray that we might find that we are working in better soil for the gospel than we can think. We pray, our Father, that you would open our eyes to your purposes and the prospects of the current hour. And we pray that more and more in the darkness of this world that you would have a, a people shining forth, not just individually, but together, shining as a light, jumping over old animosities and divisions, making the two one. We pray that more and more in this church that Christ would be all and in all and that in him the sweetness of the gospel would be made more and more manifest as your...